trolling, trolling for ten baggers. Trolling, trolling for ten baggers. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stock that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who've found them before. In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions. Hi, and thanks for tuning in. This episode is a special one with our first international guest. Today we're talking with Ian Castle, founder of Microcap Club and a long-time investor in small cap companies. Ian has a vast experience in small and undiscovered companies that are often ignored by the broader funds management industry in the early stages. We discuss how Ian started out, his approach now, and what he's learned along the way. I'll leave it at that for an intro for now, and let's get straight into the conversation. We have a very special guest today, founder of Microcap Club and Intelligent Fanatics, Ian Castle, thank you so much for jumping on the show all the way from Pennsylvania. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Well, that's very kind of you. Do you want to tell listeners and start off with your what got you into microcaps and sort of your, your story about how you found your feet in this industry? Sure. Uh, I got introduced to investing when I was in high school, so I would have been maybe 16 years old, and my parents sat me down and and they told me that they had saved for me approximately 20,000 USD you know that I could use towards my university or college education and they wanted to let me know then so I could choose what university to go to I could go to you know a more expensive one and kind of burn through that 20,000 in a semester or two or maybe go to a less expensive school and and maybe work part time and be able to you know just you know to have that pay for my entire education and basically they, they introduced me to their financial advisor at the time and I opened up an account with him, put that money in it, and that kind of got me introduced to the markets. And this was 1996, 1997. This was right in the middle of the technology bubble. And he started showing me some technology stocks and some small cap names. And you know, I was like, all right, well, let's just buy a little bit of this and that and this and that. And you know, all of a sudden, I had you know six or seven of these small cap technology companies. And you know, every day they would get bid up, you know, probably similar to market we have today, quite honestly, um, they would get bid up. And, you know, I turned that 20000 into about $120,000 by the time I graduated high school. And by that point, I was kind of bit by the, the greed bug. And, you know, I was like, well, I don't want to go now waste all this money on an education. You know, I'll just go to a lesser expensive university, commute from my parents' house, and then also work part time so I could just continue to um, really grow this capital. And that was almost at the peak of the bubble. I ultimately worked for a financial advisor locally while I was going to university. And I was mainly, you know, I hate to put it this way, but a glorified receptionist. So I was answering the phones for this financial advisor. It was a sizable office, had about 200 million in assets, had about a thousand clients. Um, so it was a sizable office. And, you know, when that dot-com bubble burst, not only did my portfolio burst, but, you know, so did a lot of other people's, you know, as well. And so I had to field all those phone calls from people calling in and every emotional state, as you can imagine, you know, from just fear to sadness to just confusion. And uh, I watched my own portfolio go from that 120,000 down to about 8,000 at the low. And, you know, learned a lot of lessons. I was averaging down as those technology small cap names dropped <laughs> and, they, and they dropped from mid cap to small cap to micro cap. And so that's that's how I got introduced to microcap investing was kind of on the way down from the technology bubble. And, you know, really from there, um, I was getting more and more into these smaller companies, not just because of the companies I was invested in that I ultimately did sell became microcaps, but because I also started evaluating a company in the United States called XM Satellite Radio. And this was around 2001, 2002. Again, I had $8,000 left trying to figure out what to do. Um, look at my wound, so to speak. And I saw this company was going to be presenting up in New York City. Um, it's about New York City is about a three hour car drive or bus ride from where I live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And I called up the conference organizer and, you know, I basically made up a name. I said I was, you know, Ian Castle with Castle Capital. <laughs> I just made up a, a firm name and had fake business cards made. And they said I could come and uh, took a bus from 
uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania to New York City for this event, you know, put on a, a suit and I'd worn three years prior and luckily it still fit after a couple semesters at university. Uh, and so I ended up going to this event, hearing the CEO of XM Satellite Panero present, and I followed him out the back of the room after his presentation into a one-on-one room and just sparked up a conversation with him. And we sat down, we spent about 10 minutes together. And, you know, I was all struck, you know, my eyes were probably as big as saucers. I was just sitting down with the management teams the first time I ever did it. And, you know, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. I don't know if I really was even listening to what he was saying, to be honest with you. Uh, But I ended up leaving that meeting, kind of going out, taking the bus ride home. All I could think about was this company. And I ended up buying XM satellite radio stock the very next morning at $1.78 per share. And that was near a low in that company. It was a heavily shorted stock. About 40% of the float was held short at that time. People were betting that it was going to go bankrupt. Satellite radio was this new emerging field. You know, everybody still had terrestrial radio where you, know, you would drive, you know, 50 kilometers or 50 miles out of your area to change the radio station. I know, I mean, not too many people remember those days, but that's how it was. And so this was a story stock and they had a, a couple billion dollars in debt. They launched satellites up to space and they had really no customers. And why did I invest in it? I don't know, but I did. I put the $8,000 into it. And almost immediately, they started signing OEM agreements with Ford, with GM, and folks like that. And it just started this huge short covering rally that propelled that stock from $1.78 up to about $40 per share in about 14 months. And so I ended up making all the money back. Uh, and then some ended up selling out, maybe like a $25, $28 average, something like that. And it was all luck, 150% luck. Um, but it's what got me interested in microcap investing. And really, I point to where my love affair started with microcaps as that meeting I had with the CEO of XM Satellite Radio. Just the ability to sit face-to-face with the CEO of somebody that I was thinking about investing in just fascinated me. And I've been hooked ever since. That's a brilliant story. So it's about 20 bags just for, for roughly and probably counting. Um, Ian, how did that sort of lead you to your sort of investment strategy that you now deploy or, or a big believer in? So, you know, back then I kind of stuck with the story stock angle. Um, this was you know the early to mid 2000s. Microcap companies is you know, a lot of your listeners are well aware of even today, a lot of the discussion happens on message boards, public message boards, and it was no different back then, especially in the United States. You know, we'd message boards like Raging Bull and Yahoo Finance and Investors Hub back then. And that's that's where a lot of the discussion happened on these companies because most of the folks that owned these companies were retail investors. And so I got on these message boards, you know, kind of built up a reputation of, you know, writing about companies, found a few mentors. Uh, but really, from maybe that 2002 to 2005, six, you know, it was mainly investing in companies, um, maybe not exactly like XM, but more story stockish. Um, and from that, from then, and through a few mentors, uh, learned the ropes a little bit, grew some, grew some capital, um, went to grad school right after my university studies, got my MBA from Villanova University, kind of went to graduate school right after undergrad as a way to. It's kind of a socially acceptable way to waste time and hone my craft by your cap investing. And it worked out well, got a degree at the same time. Um, and again, my, my investing kind of philosophy and strategy was kind of evolving. I kind of evolved, this might hit with a lot of uh, Australian resource investors, but pivoted from in like 2005, six to being kind of in the junior mining resource sector, you know, so precious metals. So I went heavy into that area in 2005, six. Um, right when gold was kind of going from four or $500 an ounce, starting to spike forward to seven, eight, $900 an ounce, and really kind of stayed in that space um, up until, and actually probably right after the uh, the crash of 08, 09, I was pretty heavily in resources until about 2010. Um, and that was right around the same time as I became a full-time private investor at that point in time, 2008, 2009. And then and it was getting a long story, but then I got it, then I started only then after I became a private full-time investor, kind of really started paying attention more to fundamentals, you know, kind of pivoted more looking at fundamentals, kind of layering or over a kind of a GARP component to my investing. And then from there, there was a few years where I got really heavy into life science investing and med tech. And to be honest, today, over you know, the last 20 years, 
you know, I look at the portfolio today and kind of the strategy that I have, it encompasses kind of all of that into one. You know, I have, I can't really say I'm a value investor, a deep value investor, a growth investor, but I have kind of all of those elements in it. And, you know, I have a gold company in there alongside a SaaS company, which is alongside other com- types of situations and, and companies. So it's kind of a stew, you know, and it kind of looks like a stew too. When you look at the pieces, you're like, what is that? But you put it together and it tastes good. Um, that's kind of how, it, yeah. It sounds like a yeah, fascinating story. And then um, I guess we can talk a little bit about your current portfolio and um, all the types of um, industries you look at. Just to go back to that historical theme, are you seeing sort of any parallels between the um, the dot-com boom? Because it sounds like you started your private, you started full-time right around that time. Are there any similarities to what you're seeing in the market now? Um, it's hard to say that I don't because we definitely do. I mean, we're kind of back to this point. I always, you know, in bear markets, which is, I actually went full, became a full-time private investor in late 08, 09. So right kind of during that recession and, you know, during bear markets and even during the period we went through earlier in 2020, February, March, you know, the only thing that matters is a balance sheet. You know, can your portfolio companies survive, you know, during bull markets, the only thing that really matters was is is growth and growth of earnings. And during bubbles, all people care about is the top of the income statement, the revenue line, and how fast that can grow. And you know, I think we could all agree that you know, it feels like we're towards that bubble end where the only thing people care about is that top line growth at all costs. And maybe even worse than that, it's almost like the trashier the company, the higher it's going right now. So I, I would definitely say that there's some... Um, definitely feels very similar to that environment. That's really interesting, Ian, because I know we're many of people who are value investors are scratching their heads and, and trying to make sense of what we're currently seeing. I guess I'm interested in having listened to your other interviews about how your strategy worked during the GFC. You talk about strong balance sheets, but did it test your resolve? Was it a change? Was it a pivot? Um, or was it just really about your what you've described as conviction investments? So during that during that 0809 time period, I was primarily in three companies. So I've always been a concentrated investor. When I was building my capital, I was in three, four, at max five companies. And I just you know, really paid attention to those three or four companies. And um, so in 08, 09, I was in three companies and one of them in particular, even during that drawdown where the markets, at least in the US, drew down about 52% peak to trough during that time period, one of the companies went up 285%. And that was not an inverse long ETF or a gold ETF or, you know, something like that. This was actually just a small, growing, profitable company. And, you know, that company went up almost 300% during that awful environment. And, you know, that company grew, was growing 50, 100% a year during that environment. And no institutions owned it because it was a small micro cap. I want to call it, it was probably a 10, 15 million market cap, call it maybe June of 2008. And, you know, so that's pretty tiny. And it, it, it was growing 50, 100% a year and no institutions owned it and really nobody owned it to sell it. <laughs> and so, so it, it, it went up. And what, it, what, that, what that taught me kind of going through that environment is institutions ultimately entered that name later that year and early in 09 as it became, as a 60 cent stock became a three, $4 stock. And even in that environment, institutions are drawn to high growth, profitable companies that they don't own. And so it kind of helped me formulate my thesis around, I want to be in the smallest, least liquid, least institutionally owned businesses that can sustain high organic growth rates that institutions don't own. And, you know, when you look at some white papers that are out there by Roger Ibbotson and others, there's actually historical statistical proof that proves that the best place to be over the long term is in illiquid microcaps, which kind of goes counter to everybody's human nature and what they would expect. Um, but the outperformance is is pretty large. You know, in addition, at least here in the United States, I mean, the smallest decile of the public markets has 
outperformed by 500 basis points compared to the next largest decile here in the States. That would be smallest decile would be sub 110 million market cap. And so it's not just me talking about one random experience I had in 0809. You can point to a bunch of white papers that point to the fact that you want to go to where the inefficiency is. You go where the illiquid under-owned companies are. And that just happens to be small liquid companies that are microcaps. That's interesting. And um, I guess that's something that we haven't had anybody mention before, I think, is that if institutions don't own a stock, not only are they not there buying it, but they don't on the register to sell it, which I think is quite fascinating. Well, and, and on the other on the other side of that, what's interesting in that same white paper is, guess where the worst place to invest is? The best, the best place from a return standpoint was illiquid microcaps. The worst place was liquid microcaps. Not liquid, large cap. This this one it was kind of a picture of matrix. It was like illiquid, illiquid to liquid across you know micro, small, mid, large cap. And so the best place is illiquid micro. The worst was actually liquid micro. And the reason is at least in the United States. Again, I can't speak to Australia, but a lot of the larger micro caps are already in a lot of the indices. They're already institutionalized. And you know when the markets start to go neutral or bearish, the first place institutional investors do is they take off risk. And so then all of a sudden you see this constant bid whacking in sort of the larger microcap liquid microcap arena as institutions and pensions try to take risk off all at once. Absolutely. And you certainly see that in the Australian markets as well with some of the smaller fund managers that yep. yeah, when they're on a, when they're known on a name, that's precisely what you see in the market. So in, in terms of the register or the um I guess share institutional ownership, that's obviously one thing you mentioned there and liquidity. Could you talk us through some of the other sort of key tenants in things that you like to see in a small cap or things that you're looking for that the institutions aren't? You know, I would say overall, there's kind of four overarching themes that I currently look for. And, you know, you can kind of rabbit trail into each one of these themes too. But, you know, in general, just the four, you know, a business that can grow through a recession, you know, even grow through an environment like we had, you know, 10 months ago to date that I'm talking about COVID <laughs> people listen to this two years from now. Um, the second thing is a balance sheet that can weather a storm and act with occasional boldness, you know, where they can be aggressive when their competitors aren't and maybe even buy a competitor. And your number three is a leadership team and organization that kind of showed signs of intelligent fanaticism. And we can get into that a little bit if you want, but wrote a couple books on, intelligent fanatics and trying to find great leaders because especially in microcap, if you want to find a great microcap, you need to find great leaders because they manage small companies. Um, and so spent a lot of time just trying to analyze those qualitative traits of great leadership. Um, so you want to find those folks. And last but not least, kind of evaluation that can conservatively double in three years. You know, so 25% CAGR basically was what that means. And conservatively, not based on a story, but based off fundamental drivers and underpinnings of that business. Um, and so those are the four things I look for. And, you know, when you look at the ecosystem of microcaps, all right, a business that can go through a recession, well, you know, of the ecosystem of 10,000 microcaps in North America, okay, maybe that takes it down by 90%. I don't know. You know, and then you just do a balance sheet that can weather as well, does it take it down by 95%, you know, leadership team, 98% evaluation at conservatively. Okay, so maybe the there's a couple hundred companies or maybe 50 companies out of that entire pool that are that kind of fit that profile. And so these are kind of broad things I'm talking about, but um, those are the general filters I'm looking through to find those really unique situations. If we can sort of adopt that, if there's, if there's a business that fits one of those four criteria, how do you go about buying or, or starting to build a position in, in some of those names? In the old days, I would buy it all at once. And now that I'm middle-aged, I just turned 40 last week, <laughs> I would say I take my time. Um, I've been burned a few times over the years, you know, just liking something, you know, believing in the story, going out and buying a full position, and then management doesn't do anything. So I would say what I do now is, you know, I would do all the groundwork and due diligence into the name, you know, do all the types of things like a lot of other investors would do that are listening to this, I hope, you know, which is read all the filings, read all the interviews. Um, I love going back 10 or 15 years if you can find an interview with a management team, you know, or, or the CEO. 
you know, see how they talk about the business, um, really understand the fundamental drivers of that business, where they fit in, into the competitive landscape, uh, you know, and really just do all of that work. And I try to, I believe in the Phil Fisher approach to investing, which is you're basically at the buy decision before you ever reach out to the management team. Uh, because what he believed is what I believe, which is you really don't know what the right questions are to ask the management team until you've done the work. Um, and so I usually don't reach out to the management, which I do with every company. I talk to every management team and I try to visit every company as well. But a lot of times that's kind of after I'm like 75% or 70% to that buy decision. Um, and so normally what happens is by the time I talk to the CEO, I might be nibbling on the stock already. And depending on the valuation of the company, you know, could determine how aggressively I'm nibbling. Um, but I'm normally picking up, you know, a third of my position, um, usually watching that CEO kind of continuing to build relationship with them, you know, having a couple more calls with them and, you know, over the next quarter or two, continuing to build as they execute or do what they say. And kind of that final third is, you know, and that could be six months later, it could be two years later, you know, rounding out that position, buying that last third, once you really know that you found a company and a CEO that's executing. Um, because that's our biggest risk, really, in these small emerging companies is buying into stories where the people don't execute. Yeah, that's fascinating, Ian. I'm glad you mentioned that because you've certainly um, said that to other interviews you've done where, you know, 70% of your research is done before picking up the phone. And I think you even referenced where you found it really hard to get a hold of a management. And I guess if you're ha having difficulty getting a hold of a manager, then they're really, really focusing on the business. But by the same token, if you take the view that if you're going to pick up the phone and, and take someone's time, you want to be very prepared because otherwise you're going to get very sort of basic answers. So I think that's, that's fundamental because we've had a lot of people, a lot of guests on the show talking about management, but we haven't heard that point specifically about doing your research beforehand. Um, what sort of traits along that sort of vein about management sort of make you turn away and run away from a position? You know, I would say a lot of the things that turn me away are kind of the things that attracted me earlier in my career, you know, and that's just a storyteller. You know, and I think the micro cap ecosystem, small cap, well, any cap <laughs> for that matter, you know, has its fair share of, of storytellers. Uh, and I'm still attracted to stories. You know, I'm not a deep value investor looking to buy things that are undervalued that can hopefully get fairly valued someday. I'm looking to buy things that are undervalued that can get overvalued. And to do that, you need to find a company that can tell a good story that has a great story, but also has fundamentals that align with that, that story. And so probably first and foremost, I pay very careful attention to just execution. That's first, first and foremost. Um, you know, we did a lot of work in the intelligent fanatics and, you know, quite honestly, even before I kind of did a lot of work into them, I probably spent too much time talking to the CEO or evaluating them. And actually, a lot of the research that we did, I kind of came away with the conclusion that, you know, you should be spending more time with the people around that CEO as you do with the CEO and evaluating them. You know, do they have great people around them? You know, one of the things that I run into that I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too, especially if they invest in microcap is on the very small end of microcap, you know, let's call it sub 50 million, sub 30 million. You have a lot of businesses that uh, Brent Bishore, who's a friend of mine in the United States, in private equity, he calls them hustles. Um, that, you know, yeah, it's a, it's a business that's unique, but it's just, a, it's a CEO, a CEO's hustle. It's like his effort is providing you know, is doing, he, basically him doing all the work. It's, it's all him. And he's grinded it out. He's undercapitalized. And in some ways he has to be the one driving it because he doesn't have the resources to hire great people. Um, but there's, you're always going to reach a ceiling with those types of businesses. I think, you know, maybe some people in here have seen that where, yeah, the person could tear it from zero into a 10 or maybe even a $20 million business. Um, but they can't make that pivot to then making it a business that could scale to 100 because they are their own ceiling and they can't 
delegate and they don't bring in great people around them. And a lot of times the difference between a stock that goes that can double and a stock that can go up 10x is a leader that can scale and delegate and bring on great people around them. And so I try to pay very close attention to the types of hires they make and the and the and that it's a real management team there. It's not just a one man hustle or one gal hustle. Yeah, that's really interesting, Ian. And I, I guess certainly talking to management's been something that lots of our guests have talked about. Visiting on sites and up another level, obviously, and that if you've got the capacity, that's obviously a really useful resource. If people are sort of hesitant, I guess, to to make that step in contact management, what are the other well, what would you yeah, how would you suggest people go about it, I suppose, and doing some research is one of them. Are there other um techniques and tools or places you can look at to assess a management's capacity if you're not able to visit on site or speak to them in person? You know, I think I think the first and foremost is to look out for red flags, like look out for the worst ones, not necessarily the ones that aren't going to execute to their fullest, but the ones that are just sleazeballs, <laughs> you know, um, the ones that could be fraudulent. Yep. And so I think the first thing is just, it's, it's amazing how many investors don't put a CEO or the management team's names in Google and press enter and see what comes up. And it's amazing just how many things you can find just by doing that that are, aren't good, that, you know, it's easily accessible and people just don't do it. You'll, you'll pull up lawsuits or things of that nature and you'll, you know, you can pull up things pretty easily on people nowadays. You're just using the internet. And so, I mean, the first thing I do is just pull up the CEO's name, put it into Google and see what pops up and really do a, a, a real search on that person to, to see if there's any dirt that you can find. Um, and a lot of times you can find management teams that have a lot of related party transactions or they're, they're self-dealing. Um, and that's a big red flag. You know, I haven't, I think I've ever found a real company that has a lot of related party transactions, you know, so, you know, um, so that's a big red flag. Um, honestly, something that I, something that I try to do is look at, at least here in the United States, you have glass door reviews and things like that. See what the employees or past employees are saying, you know, about the company and the leadership. And a lot of this stuff is is kind of publicly accessible. I mean, anybody can go into LinkedIn and and put in the company name and pull up all employees and past employees, and um, maybe try reaching out to them. That's that's quite interesting. How similar there there are because I can hear you talking about what you call uh, sleaze bags, or I guess we would say you know another way of putting it politely is over promoters. I guess management teams that are always consistently raising money and. And we've seen a lot of that in the last 12 months. And, and you think about the Australian market and mining companies. Mining companies are always having to raise money. So um, I think you've, you've, you've mentioned some really um, tangent points. I think, um, you know, going and doing your research, checking related party transactions, you know, checking vendors, who's bringing in a project, all that sort of stuff. And, and, even, and even how, how known, like, a lot of the things I looked for in the past have just changed. Like nothing makes me feel better when I stumble upon a great business that I think is really good. And I go to hot copper and there's not a single post on it, you know, where five, 10 years ago, if I would go like, why isn't anybody talking about this? You know, what am I, what's going on here? Like you want to see activity is because you're getting your reinforcement, you know, from what other people say, you know, on a company that you may like. You know, but nothing's better is when you, at least for me now, is when you go into a public message board and there's very little activity. <laughs> but that might also suggest, Ian, that, that it's an illiquid stock. Exactly. Yep. Just coming back, I think, you know, you talk about people that can tell a story. Um, something that's always resonated for me is, is, is learning from mistakes that we do. And often that's part of the craft. When you've listened to a really good storyteller, how do you force yourself not to get sucked in into what they're trying to tell you? And, you know, you develop a bit of a relationship with some of these management teams, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's a relationship, but, you know, honestly, I'm not looking for insider information. I'm looking just for how they think about their business and industry. And so they might be a good storyteller. And I love a good storyteller. I'll tell you that because they still need to motivate. They still need to make, they still need to sell. They need to sell not only themselves, but they need to sell the company, their products, their services, you know, so I'm all about a good, a good salesperson, but how I usually bring it down to earth is, you know, what do you, what, 
what are you going to accomplish over the next 12 months and how are you going to get there? You know, what should, you know, what should your milestones be as an investor looking at you? What, what do you want to do? Like what, give me some metrics, you know, something that they can't just, you know, kind of gloss over with a story. So and then hold them accountable to it. So I take, when I talk to a management team, I'm usually taking pretty copious notes. And then as I talk to them again, I go back and see what they told me before and see how much it's changed. And nobody's perfect. Listen, like, you know, if I was running a company, things change. These aren't perfect linear progressions, you know, but I, I take close notes on what they've said in the past to see if it makes sense and how they're evolving in the future, if they're glossing over mistakes they've made. Fantastic. And I suppose that talks about once you've found a company, are you, do you normally sort of just buy a position and then let it play out or would you wait for a key catalyst before you might be adding or the next logic question is selling as well? When do you decide to start taking some profits off? You know, it it's, it really depends on where the company's at. You know, my my favorite positions are the ones that are sort of medium sized at cost, and then they grow into large positions because they've earned the right. You know, and that's probably somewhere else where I've evolved over the last ten years. Um, you know, where I would take sort of bigger at cost positions. You know, putting twenty percent positional at cost. Where now, you know, I might go up to fifteen, but I'd much rather makes sense and I'm you know by all intents and purposes this is very still very concentrated but compared to how I used to invest it's not you know I'd love to just make it a five or ten percent position and it grow into a 25 percent position uh, it's just easier to hold that you know and that's the key to all investing is you, know, you want to hold your winners as long as you can um, but we all have points that you know we need to take a little bit off and you know for you know the way i do it might be different from somebody else for me it's historically been around you know once a position reaches that 30% of the portfolio level i'll start shaving 5% of it off you know if it keeps working back up to 30% again take another 5% off you know just trying to slowly peel out of your winners um you know if i'm successful uh you know the portfolio should include a couple small cap companies, you know, if we're being honest. And that's by somebody that initially looks to invest in something at a hundred million or less market cap. You know, you should have two or three five hundred million billion dollar companies three or four years from today if you invest like me, just because that means you had winners and you don't want to sell them just because they won, because just because something's a billion dollar market cap doesn't mean it can't be five billion if they're executing. Um, so that's a long winded answer, but that's on the that's how I think about buying a position. And normally what triggers me to buy more is just continued execution. Um, just because something has doubled or tripled, a lot of times it's less risky than it was when you initially put the position on. Because when you initially put the position on, you know, it, it was a smaller company or you were, you were waiting for a catalyst that transpired and maybe something else happened, you know, and a lot of times, you know, when I'm adding 200, 300% higher, it's actually riskier than, or less risky than it was when I initially bought it. So I'm not against averaging up. In fact, the best positions that I've ever owned, I was constantly averaging up. Okay. And there's so much that we could unpick. We could frankly spend half an hour here. Um, the first point is talking about trimming and then we can come back to averaging up because I know that's something that Joe and I want to talk about as well. But you put out an article in your microcap club earlier this year and just to quote you, to achieve a multi-bagger in the portfolio, you have to hold a multi-bagger in the portfolio. Holding can be excruciating, especially winners. If you're always going to trim from your 30 to 35% and trim 5% off, aren't you going to be taking out that alpha, that outsized return if a stock does incredibly well? You are. I mean, it, I, I, I give you that as a reference, whether it's peeling off 2% or 5 The main point is you trim a little bit because um, you're not always going to be right either. You know, it's like I, I used to make things be 50 or 60% of the portfolio. Uh, I don't know if it's just my old age or whatever, but now it's kind of been down to uh, the 30 or 35% levels when I started trimming. But I mean, for me, I think you can still capture a significant amount of alpha even by trimming a little bit when it, once it gets up to that kind of, at least for me, 30, 35%. So I feel comfortable doing that and being okay with it. 
Okay, no, that's terrific. Particularly in this market, I just can't help but thinking about how strong some stocks are doing. And, and frankly, the conversations I hear from a lot of people is, I'm selling things too soon. And it just comes back to the point where you've said you're not going to be right all the time. Um, and, you know, in micro cap investing, it's a game of batting average. It's not a game of batting average. It's slugging percentage. Do you want to talk about what you mean by that? Or uh, Sure. You know, even, even after, you know, doing this for 20 years and feeling like I have a good lens for what makes a winner, I'm still not going to be right all the time. And I know that. Um, you know, when I look at my batting average over the last two years, I think I was right 75% of the time. But if I'm being honest with myself, look at the market we're in for the last two years, you know, it kind of raises all boats, even ones that should have sunk. <laughs> so I would say I would say my batting average is normally around that 60% mark, uh, most likely. And just because these are small emerging companies and what i found is oftentimes they evolve in bad ways more than good ways and you know the way i invest is it's never going to be a low turnover kind of strategy you know there's always going to be turnover to this um and so there's always going to be companies that you find that are better than your 10th and 11th best idea and so you're always kind of peeling out of those there's always going to be two or three that the story has changed and you just need to sell it, you know? And so there's always going to be half that portfolio is usually is being turned over in a year, you know, and then hopefully you have, if we're talking about 10 or 12 companies, hopefully you have three or four that are going to be those longer term kind of holds. Uh, but longer term could be two years because the story can change after two years, just because it worked for two years. You know, or it could be five years or 10 years. I mean, a reality check I had was when I look back over the last, let's call it five years. And how many, how many companies did I, that I do I own today that I owned five years ago uh, out of maybe 50 companies I've owned? I, don't, I think I've owned one. Okay, so that tells you how hard the game is. And that doesn't mean that all those companies dropped to zero and were losses. It just means, you know, for a lot of these small companies, they do well for a period of time or a season, and that could last a few quarters to a few years. And and then they reach their ceiling and the story changes and you exit or you exit on the way up or whatever the case may be. And so this is not, my type of investing is not buy and hold. I wish it was. I wish, it, I wish you could do the coffee can portfolio in this approach, but you'd be broke if you did. I'm just on that coffee can portfolio you mentioned there, Ian. I've heard that reference before. Can you give us a really quick explanation of what that example is? So, a, a, yeah, yeah, a coffee can portfolio. Uh, Chris Mayer of 100 Baggers mentions that he does give he gives a good, really good overview in his book. But a coffee can portfolio is basically you buy, you know, five or ten stocks and you put it in a coffee can and put it underneath your bed and you never look at it again. <laughs> So it's a it's a real buy and hold approach. You know, you literally just buy them and you forget about it. That's the simplest explanation. That's terrific. And you know, I just want to come back to what you just said before about you're actually not a buy and hold because that really surprises me. And I've listened to a few of your things, and certainly the conversation that you had um, uh, with the Acquirers podcast. And I think that relates back to the Australian market more in particular about mining companies because. Um, usually you're jumping on a thematic or something that is short-term in its nature, like, for example, EV, battery metals. That's, you know, quite quite topical right now. But, you know, that might not be to topical at the end of the year. That might not be topical in a few months. So to hear you say that you've, over the last five years, you know, you've, you know in the 50 different companies, one you're still holding is, is quite interesting because, you know, I guess you're going to turn over, you're always going to turn over something that's, that's quite unique that's going to, be phenomenal like an afterpay for example but in reality those are quite rare so um very rare i'm keen to know yes. yeah yeah i'm keen to know if if how many do you ever know you found something that is going to be life-changing or going to be something long what what suddenly changes something in your mind between something that you thought oh, i'm going to hold this for a while to suddenly now I think it's time to trim. Is it, is it something in management? And I'm sorry if we've already asked this, but just really keen to 
to sort of unpack and understand this a bit more? It could be a bunch of things. I mean, it could be a new competitive threat. It could be a misstep by management, a bad financing they did. It could be um, a bunch of things, quite honestly. Um, I'm, I'll backtrack and say, I wish I could just say I'm going to hold this for 40 years or 10 years or five years, but it's just not the reality of it. Like you, these small merchant companies, they're, they're like three or four year olds. You know, I don't know if anybody has young kids here, but you know, I have a three year old and I don't let him in my house alone by himself for more than five minutes or else he'd burn the house down. You know, I got to watch him. <laughs> and so it's even the same with these small emerging companies. It's just like, you got to, even the ones that you think have promised, it's like, you still got to watch them. You still got to pay attention, make sure they're evolving in the way that you feel like they should evolve. evolve. Um, and so you just kind of, the maintenance due diligence is immensely important. I mean, the reason I was, I'm able to, now I manage some outside capital, but for 10 years, just manage my own capital and support myself wasn't, yes, I had big wins, but it was mainly because the losses I never took, you know, getting out before other people got out, you know, spotting those changes in the thesis. Um, And it's usually when you start rationalizing owning something is when you should be selling something. I think that's a very good a good sort of um, summary there. Yeah, once you're trying to find reasons to do something that you're struggling to find, then maybe that's a, a sign that signal the time's changed. You mentioned there that you've, you're now doing a, look, being, looking after a bit of money for other people. Did you want to talk to us talk to us about what you're doing now, Ian? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, a lot of people maybe first and foremost, you know, started microcapclub.com in 2011, and that's mainly a private message board. You know, like I said, I kind of was brought up cutting my teeth on public message boards, like a lot of other investors did. And, you know, kind of liked that, but over time it just becomes a cesspool. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, maybe 10% of the posts are any good. And so I was like, you know, it'd be great to have these intelligent conversations with the intelligent people in a private forum and launched microcapclub.com in 2011 to kind of be a tool for my, my personal investing. Cause I wanted to see what other smart people in this space liked and why, and um, so that's that's going to be coming up on 10 years now. So now we have about 250 members of Microcap Club. It's a private forum talking about what we like and why. And we cover US, Canada, UK, uh, getting into Australia too, uh, just because we're finding opportunities here. And um, and then really up until 2018, you know, it was just managing my own capital. And I've always had people that approached me about managing capital. And I always said no, because they taken back to those years during the dot-com bubble crash, answering those phones of all those clients, you know, in every emotional state you can imagine. I just said, you know, I don't want to deal with other people's emotions. You know, investing's hard enough just dealing with your own. Um, but I don't know if it's just, you know, reaching my upper 30s, now I'm 40, just said, you know, maybe I should figure out a way to do this. So more or less, now I just manage a, my own capital uh, inside a small fund and manage some other uh, about 40 other families alongside my capital that kind of want exposure to the types of companies I invest in. So I launched that a couple of years ago. So I do that on the side as well. Oh, fantastic. And on Microcap Club, do you have many Australian members at the moment or um, is it predominantly a North American membership base? It's getting it's getting more and more. You know, I would say two years ago, so we're, there's two ways to join Microcap Club. Number one is to be a member. And to be a member, it's free. All you have to do is submit a two, three page investment thesis on your favorite microcap stock. And that could be on, you know, an Australian microcap. It could be on a US, Canadian, you know, European, whatever it is. And then at the end of every month, our membership reads all those applications and we vote on them yes or no on each application. And if you get enough votes, you get in as a member and it's free. And if you don't, then you can try to apply again, you know, two, three months later. Um, And so, Usually every month we have about twenty people. We usually have about twenty applications a month, uh, which also becomes a good idea flow for the members that are there, just reading the applications because a lot of new ideas pop up. Um, and so that's one way to be a member. And then we have a subscription option too for people that don't have the time or ability to be a member. You can pay five hundred dollars a year and get view only access of the forum. And so those are the the two ways that uh, that people can join and. You know, two, three years ago, it was mainly U.S. and Canada. Um, we're seeing an influx from Europe and Australia, you know, really in the last 12 months, you know, where those applications, those 20, I would say probably 50% of them 
are Australian European now. So we're getting more um, Australian European interest, which is good. That's fascinating. And so you've almost got like a filter system in your micro cap club of, 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 you know, making it at least some barriers to entry or some hurdles for people to go and do research so that you're building, I guess, a community to, to learn off each other, aren't you really? Yeah. Yeah. And you don't want to, I don't want smart people to be kept out because they don't have the money to get into it. You know, I, I want it to be free, but I want people to prove their worth, you know, cause I wanted a certain level of personal in there that's allowed to post, you know, I can't have somebody that doesn't understand what a, a 4C filing is or in the States, a 10Q or, 10, you know, you have to have some level of competency <laughs> so you can have a dialogue. Um, and so it's worked out well. I mean, we have, we have members that manage billion dollar funds and we have members that probably manage, you know, $3,000 in their, in their portfolio. And that's fine because quite honestly, just like back when I was finding companies, when I was a teenager or in my early twenties, a lot of these small microcap companies are found by smart retail. They're not found by institutions because institutions can't own them. So I love getting young, talented, hungry folks on there that are smart you know, because they're the ones that are turning over these rocks. And that's what MicroCap Club's there for. It's not a guru service. It's not, you know, sign in and get Ian's best seven picks because he turned X into Y. No, this is, let's see what a bunch of smart people in this space are talking about and why. And so we have conversations on different types of businesses from life science businesses to mining to SaaS to technology to healthcare to everything that you can find is on there from people that are decent at finding them. Yeah, that's that's really terrific because I think part of the you know the whole rationale of getting guests like yourself on this is so that everyone can learn and and, and pretty much be sharing information because I think it's like that old um, you know put the smart people in and around your circle those that are going to motivate you those that are going to bring out your best um, that's going to strive you forward to to succeed more so I think that's really terrific and and well done on that. Okay, Ian, now comes to the favourite part of the show. Um, in the absence of giving us a specific 10-bagger, do you have a theme that you think has very explosive upside and would there be any books that you could recommend for our listeners? Um, books? I would say I'm not on video, but I'm turning around looking at my bookshelf for those of you. <laughs> I think on due diligence, you know, still one of the best books on due diligence and qualitative due diligence is the the Sleuth Investor. Um, that may have been mentioned on your on your podcast before, but that's probably the best book on qualitative due diligence for small companies. The Sleuth Investor. I don't think that one has been mentioned before. No. Um, you know, I would say, quite honestly, I think the book that I co-authored, Intelligent Fanatics Project is a really good book if you're looking into trying to find what qualitative attributes of CEOs and leaders that you should be looking for. Um, I think that's a good book on the qualitative side. Thanks, Ian. That's great. We'll put uh, links to both of those in the show notes. I guess in the absence of a specific stock, if you're not able to talk about those, do you have any sort of specific themes or sectors that you think are of particular interest at the moment, or are you still open to, to any sectors? I'm getting more concentrated into medical technology. It's one of the areas that I find that even small microcap companies can have um, that can change the world, quite honestly. Uh, you, know, there, you see a lot of small microcap companies developing some medical technologies that, you know, they can. And a lot of these companies have IP protecting them. They can grow at high double-digit sustainable growth rates. They have high margins, you know, because it's patented technology. Um, it's just an area that I've been getting more concentrated into and more interested in. Uh, I would say in the last two years, you know, I would say probably fifty percent of the portfolio is in those types of situations right now. And is that because of COVID or aging population, or is it just something you think that's just got good sort of tailwinds? I think it's just a good overall tailwind in general, regardless of, you know, and it wasn't because of COVID. This is, you know, before COVID started getting more interested in and trying to educate myself in the area. But uh, it's, that's, it's just an area that I, I think could, I think it's very interesting. Mm. No, certainly, certainly agree with those thoughts. 
Uh, Ian, I'll put you under the microscope one last time because you've been called the Dalai Lama of uh, FinTwit or Twitter. If, if you bump into someone on the street and they um, are new to investing or want to start even right now in this toppy market, what's a number one thing you would tell somebody if you're at a dinner party? You, you learn investing by investing. And you know, don't be afraid to just, all of us have some area of, of maybe not expertise, but area of interest and lean into that area, find a few companies, evaluate it, and then invest in them. You know, don't, I'm not a big fan of paper trading, which goes against probably what every professional would tell you because everybody would say it's risky to actually put your money on the line. But, you know, I learned the ropes by losing my money over and over again. And there's no better educator than losing your own money. Um, And I'm all about you know, if you the way to the way to learn investing is by jumping in with both feet, and so that's usually what I tell people when they say, you know, how how do I find the next microcap? Well, that's a very general, vague question, but you know, well, what what's your experience or you know what's your profession? You probably have a core expertise that you can align, you know, with some type of industry. You know, go evaluate that industry, find the companies in it, and then invest in a couple of them follow their progress and reach out to management teams, you know, do all these things I talked about. Um, you know, it's all about reps. You got to put more and more reps and the more reps you, you put in, the stronger you get. Yeah. That's, it's quite interesting to hear how many guests have all said something similar that you're going to learn by, by losing some money and, and getting into the market, dipping your toes in. So I think that's, that's very sage advice. So thank you so much for that. Ian. Um, if anyone wants to, to reach out or get in touch with you, apart from the MicroCap Club, um, how, how can they get in touch to, 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 have, to have a chat with you? Sure. I mean, you can, again, you can reach out through MicroCap Club. That's where I am every day. You can find me on Twitter. Uh, my handle is my name, at Ian Castle. Um, you can reach out through the website. Uh, asset management website is if.capital. Um, and that's how you can reach out. Brilliant. Thank you so much for your time, Ian. We've, we've learned a lot and we've, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and we look forward to maybe having you on again in the future. Thank you so much, Ian. Appreciate it. Thank you. Music in this episode is called 10 Minutes by Green Monday and from twinmusicom.org. Remember, the contents of this show is not financial advice. If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.